please see that. Uh, can I just add my welcome to that of Andrews? Uh, my name is Brian, for those of you who do not know me. I work here among the SMACs and ACA congregations as well. As you came in, you should have gotten a Bible from the welcome desk. In that Bible, you have to find two sheets of paper. One of them will have an outline, uh, which will help you to follow through the sermon. But more importantly, uh, you also got the Bible. And if you could just turn back to page 38, where we read Genesis 38, and we'll be spending our time looking at that passage. But before we begin, why don't we ask God for His help to understand His word. Our Heavenly Father, we said that all scripture is built out by God and is useful for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray that you will accomplish your purposes by your will and that you will show forth your grace in Christ once again. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Now, if you were to visit the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. today, you're going to find there a Bible, but a Bible with only 86 pages. And no, it's not because they printed it in size 5 font. No, the Bible belongs to Thomas Jefferson, who is the third president of the United States. Jefferson had decided that he needed to restore the Bible to its true state. So he took a razor and he cut off any passages that he thought was ignorant, impossible, superstitious, fanatical, or pure fiction. You wouldn't recognize his New Testament. There is no John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is only the account of Caesar imposing taxes on his empire. There is no resurrection. His gospel account ends only with Jesus being laid in the tomb. In between, there are no wise men, no angels, no miracles. And yet Jefferson claimed in a letter to his friend that his cut and paste Bible proves that he was a real Christian. I am a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus, he said. Now as Christians, we believe that the entire Bible, all 66 of its books, is the word of God. But I wonder what you're thinking as Shanti read Genesis 38 earlier. When she said, this is the word of the Lord, I wonder if you're tempted to say, no way, instead of thanks be to God. I mean, what on earth is this passage doing here? Maybe Jefferson was at least partly right. Some passages of the Bible should certainly be cut out. Or at the very least, some passages of the Bible should not be preached in public at all. It's, it's an 18SX text, isn't it? Should Disney ever decide to make an animated movie of Joseph, I don't think this chapter is going to make it in. Now, at least one commentator says that this text is of no value for theological exposition. What he means is, don't be stupid enough to preach on Genesis 38. And yet, the Apostle Paul, he insists that whatever that was written 
in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And that includes Genesis 38. So having heard the Apostle Paul, we now come back to Judah and Tamar. And we ask again, what on earth is this passage doing here? And that's not actually a bad question to ask. Now at the beginning of, of the week, uh, a friend called me up. And I told him that our church was starting a sermon series on Joseph. And that I was preaching today. So naturally he asked me what I was preaching on. So I just began to tell him about Judah. Uh, he interrupted me with a puzzled tone in his voice. Hang on, hang on. I thought you said you guys were doing Joseph. And my guess is that many of you today are thinking the same thing. I thought we were doing Joseph. You know, we heard last week of the brothers plotting and their jealousy. You know, Joseph's on his way to Egypt. We want to know what happens next. So why does the director turn his camera here? Isn't the movie we're watching called Joseph, not Judah? So let's find out if that's true. Let's just turn to Genesis 37, verse 2. Genesis 37, verse 2. And how does this section begin? These are the generations of Jacob. The generations of Jacob. That's the actual movie title. You see, this narrative is not just about Joseph. Although obviously Joseph has a very big part to play. No. This narrative is about Jacob and his family. The family chosen by God to fulfill his promises. Ever since Genesis 12, when God promised Abraham that through him, God will form a people to be a blessing to the nations, we have been following the fortunes of Abraham's descendants. The fulfillment of God's promises is bound up with this family. What comes from this family is what matters. However, by the end of Genesis 37, things don't look very promising today. Joseph is heading to a foreign land. Jacob, he's broken. And the brothers, they're still a nasty bunch. Things don't look very promising. And we all know moments in our lives when things don't look very promising. Times when we struggle to trust God. There will be moments when we think, can I trust God? When He says that I have a certain and living hope because Christ has risen? What about my circumstances? I'm, I'm so tired of having to choose the harder road all the time. Or we think, can I trust God when He says I'm forgiven and loved by Him in Christ? How can that be? I've fallen so many times. And maybe that's you today. And Genesis 38 is for you. The narrator is telling us, don't just pay attention to Joseph. Pay attention to Judah. He's just as significant in God's 
big plan. Yes, Judah, that, that jerk, that scoundrel, that rat, that brother who didn't think twice about selling his younger sibling into slavery. He's just as significant in God's faith. Things don't look promising, but God is not going to knock off course so easily. He is absolutely committed. And this passage encourages us to commit to Him. So let's just turn to Genesis 38 if you are not there already. And let's look at the story of Judah and him. And the story begins with a focus on the family, a focus on the family. Joseph is gone, and yet Jacob's family is in absolute shambles. Every single day, Judah is confronted by that haunted look of Jacob, his, his resentful glass. The absence of Joseph, ironically, makes him more prominent in the household. And Judah can't deal with it. He has to get away. This has all the makings of a disaster, however. Verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. As Judah walks away from his family, what he is really doing is walking away from God. You see, this family, in, despite all its dysfunction, is still the family God has chosen to bless. It's still the family that God has chosen to use. And Judah is walking away. He has left the straight path, he has turned aside, and he has found comfort in the friendship of Hira. And Hira, we're told, is an Adulamite, which makes him a Canaanite. In other words, an idol worshipper. Judah is now making the world his refuge, not the chosen people of God. And this is confirmed for us in verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went in to her. Judah takes for him himself a Canaanite wife against the express wishes of his father. And in the book of Genesis, marriage outside the people of God always ends in tears. His uncle Esau has already set a precedent. So for example, in Genesis chapter 26, verse 34 to 35, we read, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Bessemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Judah, he doesn't care. The features of the narrative all suggest that he acts on impulse. The Canaanite wife is not even named. He doesn't detect her. And he goes into her. In fact, there is no hint of any relationship between them outside of sex. 
Now all of us have at some point thought that life would be easier without having to deal with God's people, heaven. We have high expectations of other Christians. We expect them to be kind and loving and patient. And so we feel it more when they inevitably disappoint us. We're tired of working hard at relationships that don't seem to yield much reward. In fact, sometimes we find more satisfaction in relationships outside church than inside church. You know, my non-Christian friends, they're, they're nicer, they're warmer, they're more empathetic. I feel like I have more in common with them. And so we begin to lower our commitments to other Christians. We bury ourselves in our studies or our jobs. We stop battling the traffic jams to get to church. Our cell group attendance drops. We make time in our diaries for dinners and meetups and hiking with non-Christian friends. Or we just shrug our shoulders and we just say, Sorry, can't make it when we get invites from other Christians. And God says, don't walk away from God's people. Yes, you are all different. Yes, it's hard work. But you are all united by something that goes deeper than common interests, personality, or background. All of you know the spiritual blessings you have in Christ. You all know the gospel. You all know forgiveness. You all know God's fatherhood. And God wants to use you the church, in all its weakness, to be the agent of his blessing to the world. He wants to use the church to show forth his manifold wisdom to the heavens and the earth. He wants to use the church to display the unsearchable riches of God's grace in us. So don't walk away. God does not work his purposes apart from God's people. It's very often the case that when someone is running away from God, he or she will usually run away from God's people. When someone is struggling with God, he or she usually will struggle to stand with God's people. And if that's you, don't move away. Make the people of God your refuge, not the world. That will only guarantee disaster as we will see. And as the people of God, let us be a good refuge to those who are struggling. Well, now let's come back to the passage and the focus is now firmly on the family of Judah in verses 3 to 5. Three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah, are born to him. And Judah then chooses a wife for Er. Verse 6. Her name is Tamar, which almost certainly indicates that she too is a Canaanite. Clearly at this point, Judah has lost the plot. He has no concern at all to walk God's way. And he has no concern at all for raising godly 
offspring. We're told, verse 7, that Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We're not told what Ur did, but we don't need to know the details. He is wicked, and God's judgment falls on him. This is not a godly family. Judah, Judah doesn't even seem too bothered that his firstborn is now dead. But we haven't seen the worst of this family yet. And we now witness an abdication of responsibility, an abdication of responsibility. Verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Tamer is a childless widow. And in the culture of that time, in those circumstances, the dead husband's uh, brother should marry her. That way, she can bear a son so that his line would go on. It was a means by which the widow could be looked after. And this was known as a elaborate marriage. Now the practice might seem alien to some of us, but it's actually quite common around the world. Historically, it was practiced amongst the nations surrounding Israel. It was practiced amongst those in Central Asia during World War II, when brothers took responsibility to care for the widows and children's of those who died in the war. You can still find it in many parts of Africa and India. And perhaps some of you might even know something like a leverage marriage in your grandparents' generation. I remember people had, we were joking at my brother's wedding about my, should my brother fail to show up? Now, now interestingly, every time Leverate marriage is mentioned in the Old Testament, and Genesis, Deuteronomy, and Ruth are the only times it gets uh, where we hear about it. There's an indication of family conflict and tension. Onan stands to gain if Tamer remains childless. The inheritance will pass on to him. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would raise the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring this one. Now, my A-level literature teacher, uh, he's one of my favorite teachers, and I owe quite a lot to him. But he used to love poking gentle fun at me and my Christian faith. He especially loved to use verse 9 uh, as a weapon against me. He say, oh, so Brian, verse 9, so what do you make of onanism, he used to say. But onanism is really about selfishness of the highest order. Onan is not reluctant to have sexual intercourse with Tamer at all. But he makes sure that Tamer is denied any chance of getting pregnant. Notice in verse 9, it says, whenever he went in. So this is not a one-time event, but a repeated action. He is abusing his position. 
Now, occasionally someone will use verse 9 as a prohibition against contraception or masturbation. And now the Bible might have other things to say on those subjects, but that is not the point of these verses. Three times the word offspring is mentioned in verses 8 to 9, highlighting that God's promises are at the forefront of the narrator's mind. Onan is in opposition to God's agenda. He is frustrating God's promises. That's the big point. And so he is judged for it. Verse 10. And what Onan did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And God put him to death. Now at this point, Tamer has acquired something of a reputation of a black widow. Two marriages, two dead husbands. Doesn't exactly inspire confidence, does it? But she does not deserve that reputation. Tamer is not responsible for the death of Judah's two sons. She's not responsible for her own childlessness. She's innocent. But Judah, Judah is meant to be responsible for her well-being. Yet Judah has zero intention of giving his younger son, Sheila, to her. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, till Sheila, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. God does not figure at all in Judah's worldview. He doesn't see the death of his sons as God's judgment on their wickedness. Instead, he just sees the daughter his in-law as the source of bad luck. And so he lies to her. Sheila's not going to marry her. And Judah too has set himself in opposition against God's agenda. He has abdicated his responsibility. And so the situation is plunging to a new low. And it's no wonder then we get the desperation of a lady, the desperation of a lady tamer. Judah becomes a widower in verse 12. And for comfort, he turns again to his friend, Hira. And they go up on a trip to Timnah together. And that's where his sheep are being sheared. So that means that it's celebration time. You know, it's a time where you party, you drink plenty of wine, you have plenty of fun. And Tamer gets wind of this, verse 13. And she begins to hatch a plan. For, if you look at the end of verse 14, she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. And it's a terrible, horrible plan. Tamer disguises herself as a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law so that she can bear a child. It's, it's desperate. It's, it's risky because she could pay with her life. And it's a plan that could only have been thought of by someone who could not see any other way out. 
Now, whenever we read Old Testament narratives, we must distinguish between what the writer relates to us and what the writer recommends to us. So the Bible is not necessarily endorsing what Tamer is doing. And in fact, I think we are meant to read Genesis 38 as a contrast to Genesis 39 next week, where Joseph's behavior is so, so different from everything we see going on here. And yet, in carrying out this horrible, this terrible plan, Tamer has demonstrated one thing. She is far more concerned about producing offspring than Judah is. She, a foreigner, a Canaanite woman of lowly status, is far more concerned with God's promises than Judah, the very descendant of Abraham. In fact, at this stage, you could say that Judah was more of a Canaanite than Tamar was. In verse 16, once again he's on the road and he turns aside again, this time to visit the prostitute. It is thoroughly worldly behavior. You wouldn't recognize him as part of God's family. Tamar, by now recognizing that Judah is not a man to be trusted, demands both payment and pledge in verses 17 and 18. And incredibly, Judah, he gives over his signet, his cord, his staff, which is the ancient equivalent of giving away your IC and your credit card as a guarantee of payment. And the deed is done. Tamer, she conceives by Judah, and then they go, they are separateness. And there is no irony to be found here. You know, all of this happens to, uh, at the entrance to Enaim in verse 14. And Enaim means eyes. Eyes. If Judah is clearly blind as to the identity of his sexual partner. Just as his brothers, he and his brothers deceive Jacob, just as he himself lied to Tamar about Sheila, now he himself is being deceived by his daughter in law. More than that, he is thoroughly blind spiritually. He has thoroughly bought into the Canaanite value system. He has fallen into the embrace of the world. He is heading for disaster. He is a warning to all of us. When we choose to go away from God, we will be blinded to the extent and gravity of our sin. We will reap the consequences. And yet, in spite of all this messiness, the amazing thing is that God is working. God knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, we now arrive at the climax of the story as we see vindication amidst immorality. Vindication amidst immorality. Verses 20 to 21. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the man of the place, 
where is the cult prostitute who was at Uname at the roadside? And they said, no cult, cult prostitute has been here. Look, look at Judah here. He doesn't even bother to keep his own promise to his daughter-in-law. And yet he gets all hot and bothered about making sure that this goat gets to this unknown prostitute. But he can't find her. And so he has to protect his reputation, verse 22 and 23. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the man of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. It's amazing, isn't it, that people who are so immersed in immorality are still very concerned to keep up a public face of decency. Judah is a bit like a respectable politician who's lost a video exposing his scandalous affairs. And I'm sure you all can think of certain politicians today who are the butt of people's jokes because their indiscretions have been exposed. Judah does not want to become that joke. What Judah doesn't know is the joke is already on him. And we now reach reach the pivotal moment in this story. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamer, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. Technically speaking, Tamer is betrothed to Sheila. Therefore, if she has sex with anyone else, she is guilty of adultery and is subject to punishment. Judah says, let her burn. That's right. Judah, the man who sleeps with prostitutes, is now self-righteously calling for her execution. It's a breathtaking display of hypocrisy. But now Tamer plays her trump card. Verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Now in chapter 37, Judah has cleverly hidden his guilt from his father. In chapter 38, there is nowhere for him to hide. Notice how the narrator has deliberately used the same phrasing in both accounts. Just turn back with me to chapter 37 verse 32. 37 verse 32. And they, that's the Judah and his brothers, sent a rope of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Look again at verse 25 of chapter 38. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Just as Judah and his brothers 
ask their father to identify whose work this is. Now Tamar asked Judah to identify whose signet and cord and stuff this is. Judah can run away from God. Tamar is vindicated. But finally, finally, verse 26 begins to mark something of a turning point. Verse 26. That Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila. And he did not know her again. Judah finally acknowledges his sin. He did not give Sheila over to him. He is the guilty party, not her. Between the two of them, she, she deserves to be called more righteous than him. And we begin to see a repentance of sorts in the end of verse 26. And he did not know her again. He knows that sleeping with his daughter-in-law is wrong, so it's not going to happen anymore. Judah has a long way to go, but finally, finally, we begin to see something change. So let's press the pause button here, and let's take some time to reflect on what we can learn from this story. And firstly, this story highlights for us the messy reality of sin. This story highlights for us the messy reality of sin. The Bible is not pornography. It is reality. God is not some Hollywood director looking for some new way to shock his audience. No, he tells us in his world, in his word, what the world is really like. In all its messiness and sin. Our world is one in which there is family breakdown. Our world is one in which there is deceit. Our world is one in which we look after our own interests. Our world is one in which there is much hypocrisy. Our world is one in which people like Judah and Onan and Tamar and Hira exists. And we can be thankful that the Bible is profoundly realistic about the world we live in. Some of you might know Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary who uh, went to India and operated an orphanage there for most of her life. And when you read some of the more gushing biographies of her, it's as if she can do no wrong. She's this super saint but if you were to read some of the better biographies of her, they acknowledge her flaws alongside her virtues. They recognize that she could be quite authoritarian, for example. Uh, there was one story where she was riding a horse and then she ran over a fellow missionary. But she chose not to take responsibility for it. Uh, she made her excuses. Oh, he didn't get out of the way and I can't stop in mid-gallop. The Bible paints its characters in all its flaws. If we never read this story about Judah, we might think that Judah is this super saint 
uh, clearly he isn't. And when we recognize this, it strengthens our convictions that the Bible is really God's word. The Bible isn't afraid to tell us about complex ethical dilemmas like that which Tamer faces, because that's what life in our fallen world looks like. Genesis 38 is there because the Bible is profoundly realistic about the messiness of sin in our world. Secondly, this story shows us the kind of people God deals with. The kind of people God deals with. And we discover that God is not afraid to deal with the worst kinds of people. Who is Judah? Someone who sells his brother for a prophet. Someone who hangs out with dodgy characters. Someone who sleeps with prostitutes. Someone who treats his daughter-in-law badly. Someone who is a hypocrite. Someone whose name is written on the gates of the new Jerusalem. Yes, Judah! Yes, Judah! A person whom we can all agree should not be led anywhere near the heavenly city. You will find his name there, in the new heavens and the new earth. Look at what Revelation chapter 21 verse 12 says. It, that's the new Jerusalem, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gate 12 angels, and on the gates the names with 12 tribes of the son of, Jude, of Israel were inscribed. And that includes Judah. We saw just the barest hints of a change in Judah at the end of today's story. But it is not the end of the story of Judah. And as we go through Genesis 37 to 50 over the coming weeks, keep an eye out for Judah. He might just surprise you. God is willing to deal with the worst kinds of people. And some of you here today might be especially feeling the weight of sin on your shoulders. You are especially conscious of your sin, your failures, your mistakes. You know that you have offended God. And you are thinking, I've fallen once too many times. There's, there's no way God is going to take me back. You're in despair. But don't lose heart. God specializes in dealing with people like you and me. He's not in the least surprised by our sin. Now some of you might know that statue of Jesus, known as Christ the Redeemer in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And the statue, he stands there with his arms open wide, ready to welcome. And interestingly, he faces the north side of the city, which is the richer, more affluent area. And his back is turned to the south of the city. And in the south of the city is where the world's biggest rubbish dump is. It's where people actually live. They actually make a living there, but just simply by foraging in the rubbish dump. 
the biblical Christ is indeed the Redeemer. And he knows how dirty we are, how rubbish we are, tainted by our own sin and pride. He does not close his eyes to our sin, for he demonstrates God's justice by going to the cross and punishing sin there. And yet by going to the cross, he welcomes not just people in the north, but in the south. He welcomes not just the rich, but the poor. He welcomes not just the well-adjusted, but the messy people. He's not afraid to get involved no matter how messed up your life or your sins. I don't know the rubbish in your lives, but he does. Your own transgressions, your family history, your present circumstances. And he invites you to turn away from your sin and place your trust in him. He does not want you to be weighed down. The gospel it's a gift. God accepts us not because we are worthy, but because Christ is worthy. Genesis 38 tells us that God can handle anybody and any situation. No problem. Thirdly, this story reminds us that we are to be distinctive as God's people. We are to be distinctive as God's people. Uh, we've already touched on this earlier, so I wouldn't spend a lot of time here. But Genesis 38 reminds us of the folly of distancing ourselves from God's people. Don't do it. Don't make the mistake of Judah. Don't miss your distinctiveness. Don't partner with the heroes of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 14 makes the same point. Paul says to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light to do with darkness? The point isn't so much to withdraw from the world, but rather it is that we cannot participate in any partnerships that are in opposition to God's agenda. And this might especially be a temptation for us, for those of us who are single. Be wise in choosing a mate, the Bible counsels us. Only get involved with someone who shares your faith. Otherwise, you might find yourself in the same place as Judah. Finally, this story enables us to see the triumph of God's grace, the triumph of God's grace, even in this messy family. Come back with me to verses 27 to 30, which concludes this story. Tamar conceives she has twins, and again, the older brother takes second place. The last will be the first, something we've seen already in Genesis. And this time, the winner is Perez. Zerah sticks out his hand first, but then Perez beats him to the finishing line. And Perez, that sounds like an insignificant name, and he only seems to appear in genealogies in the Bible. But let's trace his family tree. 
at the end of the book of Ruth, we are told about the generations of Perez. And there, we are told that he is the ancestor of Jesse, the father of great King David. And then we come to the opening verses of the New Testament in Matthew's Gospel. Perez is right there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. And not just Perez, but Tamar as well. And as we go down the list, we discover the real scandal. This is the family tree of Jesus, who is called Christ. God is working. God's grace has triumphed through the entire messy affair that is Judah and Tamar. God has brought about the Savior of the world. He cannot be stopped by the worst kinds of people and the worst kinds of situation. God is never absent even when He looks like it. God's purposes will win out. His grace will triumph. Genesis 38 was written for our instruction and our encouragement so that we might have hope. Let us therefore commit ourselves to Him. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your scripture is indeed God's breath and is useful for teaching us, for rebuking us, for training us in righteousness. And Father, we thank you that even in the messy story that is Genesis 38, we see that you are working. We see that even though it doesn't look like you are there, yet we know what you are doing. And so Lord, please help us to trust in you. Please help us to see that you indeed keep all your promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would we see your grace once again, that no matter how sinful we are, if we repent, we put our trust in you, we know that your grace is readily available to us. And Lord, will you please help us to keep standing with God's people? Will you please help us not to give up on the church? And until that day, Lord, we pray that we would always trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.